Hi, everybody. It's Stephen Molyneux. It is the 1st of May, 2011. Happy May Day to all of the uh, uh, Red Soak Brethren workers out there. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Sunday, the day of rest for everyone, uh, except priests, I suppose. And uh, thank you, everybody, so much who stepped up at the end of last month. Uh, April is a challenging month for donation-based businesses, particularly those with a fan base in the U.S., because the tax man swoops in like a shark and takes a fairly good rip of the jugular, leaving a little little left over for um, <laughs> Remora, like me, looking to catch a few scraps from this overextended chewing metaphor. So uh, thank you, everybody, who, um, who donated uh, yesterday and uh, signed up for new subscriptions. It is beyond appreciated. There are no words. Actually, there are probably about 50,000 words uh, to say how appreciated it is, but I won't go into them all now. So thank you, everybody, so much. And just a reminder that uh, I will be speaking in New York in an outrageous Brooklyn accent and quite possibly a disco rainbow wig. September the 10th, uh, this is at, um, uh, yes, yeah, so September the 20th, 2011, and uh, I hope that you will be able to join it if you're anywhere close to New York. It is the, uh, it's at the Liberty Fest 2 in New York City. Uh, it's uh, Tom Woods, Jack Hunter, Adam Kokesh, Jordan Page, and uh, I think fairly far down the line in fine print, Stefan Molyneux. And you can check that out at lfnyc.com. Also, Libertopia. Sorry about all of this boring business, but um, Libertopia has extended their early bird specials. Uh, so uh, you can go to libertopia.com, sorry, libertopia.org. And you can uh, sign up there. I think they've extended it through this month. I hope that you will come out October 21st, 23rd, San Diego, California. I will be emceeing and all of that. And, of course, last but not least, uh, I will be um, at the Porcupine Freedom Festival, uh, which is um, porkfest.com, P-O-R-C, fest.com. And thanks to Stephanie for the interview recently. That is June 20th to 26th. It's a whole week ladies and gentlemen, of, uh, of freedom, <laughs> relative freedom. And so I hope that you will be able to join that. If you sign up, you can use the promo code STEFAN, all caps, and that will get you, I think, 20% off for your registration. So I hope that you will check that out. And I think the cruise is all booked up, and that's all done. There's a cruise, um, a Liberty Cruise with myself and Wes Bertrand and uh, Mark Edge of Free Talk Live. And I think that's about it, other than the barbecue, for what's going down. So let's move straight on to the true brains of the outfit. You, the fine listeners. And um, let me know. Also, I've been focusing a lot. Uh, I'm sort of juggling, working on two books at the moment. But I'm also focusing on a lot of interviews uh, lately. I've really quite enjoyed them. Uh, it's a bit of prep, actually quite a bit of prep. But uh, I do like them. And if you don't like them, <laughs> because the show really is designed to appeal to you uh, sitting right there um, or standing. If you don't like them, just let me know. And uh, I will then do my usual interviewing of my hand puppets and sock puppets and toenails. And uh, that is the way that the podcast worked in the past and perhaps how they will work again in the future. But let me know. So um, <laughs> what's, uh, what's wrong with the British? Their enthusiasm is just as logical as a guy who cheers when his worms that eat his intestines perform their mating ritual. <laughs> well, this is what I would say about the royal wedding 
it's uh, it's great news. I think it's fantastic news. It's not so fantastic news that Charlie Veach got arrested for a thought crime, the crime of potentially um, deploying his what he calls the new AK-47, which is the microphone or the megaphone, uh, and uh, protesting the uh, the parasitic nuptial ritual. Uh, I'm not happy, of course, that he got arrested, now going to face court dates and trials and all that kind of stuff. That's no good. But on the other hand, what is good is that the majority of British people did not care about this $2.7 billion pillaging of the economy uh, for, by the British royal family. I mean, everybody focuses, well, it was, you know, $80 million on, on security and so on. But, of course, people got the day off. That's hard on the economy. And uh, lots of people uh, basically had money taken from them. If you're working hourly and you've got the day off, if you're getting paid hourly rather than salaried, in other words, if you're more in the private sector, then you're kind of hosed. People describing this nonsense as... Um, it's pageantry. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Grade threes making their own costumes. That's pageantry. Uh, it is a, it is a, a point of national pride. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you know what it reminds me of? And I'm remembering this from many years later, but there's, I think there's a scene in one of Robert De Niro. I think Robert De Niro's second film after Mean Streets. Um, taxi Driver with a... Uh, uh, horrendously young Jodie Foster. And in Taxi Driver, if memory serves me right, there's a scene where two guys have a scrap or a fragment of bathtub that's been sort of ground and broken up. They've got a fragment of bathtub. And what they're doing is they're looking at the rings, the scum rings on the bathtub, and they say, oh, yeah, I think it was Errol Flynn's bathtub or something like that. And it's like, oh, here, you can see where the water level went up because another woman got in the bathtub. And they're like, oh, ha, that's so sexy. Another woman got in the bathtub. And that is the level at which people at a distance are viewing these uh, people, these descendants of, of warlords. Uh, this is the uh, distance at which they're viewing it. Um, national pride? National pride? I don't even know how to unpack that sentence. It's such an antonym of everything that is rational and moral and healthy and sane. That it is national pride to be um, to have money taken from you so that people who've never had to work a day in their life and never will have to work a day in their life can have people arrested so that they can take over public spaces and in a massive orgy of ostentatious wealth consumption put together a marriage that will end in disaster. It will end in disaster. I mean, this is not, I'm not going out on any far limbs here by saying that royal marriages end in disaster. They just do. I mean, the whole environment is disastrous. I mean, if you had any sympathy and compassion for uh, people in the royal family, you would simply demand that uh, they not live this bizarre fishbowl life of no reality, no consequences, no circumstances of any basic truth. You would simply take them out of that in the same way that if somebody was strung out on heroin, even though they may not like you to, the healthy thing to do would be to try to get them off the heroin as best as you could. There is an unreality to the royal's life that is so destructive to their happiness and uh, to, to the whole concept of society in England. Uh, I'm not the first to point this out, but uh, 
the fact that you have the royals at the center and the pinnacle of British social life, it changes everything else that flows down from it. Everything then is measured in terms of quality and value relative to one's distance to these very, very strange, strange people uh, who live this very bizarre existence and who aren't free market, quite the opposite of free market. So the ideal is to be, to, to be descended from warlords who were the best murderers of the day and to not work and to ponce around uh, in uh, uniforms and uh, cut ribbons and be merely ornamental. Ornamental. It's like saying, don't be a baker. Be the plastic guy who goes on top of the wedding cake. <laughs> That's the ideal. So I just sort of wanted to, to point it out. And there is something, to me, there is something awfully self-abasing to look up with respect at these people. I didn't watch any of this, of course, but to look up with respect at people getting married on, on your money during a time when England is facing what is laughably called austerity measures, which means that they're going to roll back government spending by a few years. Austerity measures would be to go back to the government spending, say, of 1820. <laughs> that to me would be austerity, though it still wouldn't be far enough. But to roll back government spending a few years is not exactly <laughs> austerity. Uh, so, But that's what they have to call it because it sounds... Um, uh, it sounds more dramatic, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, I have some reservations about fairy tales for Isabella. Uh, you know, the prince is going to come and save you and you ride off and live happily ever after and so on. I think that stuff is, is bad, bad for kids. And you can see the infection that takes hold and how long it continues when they're adults. So, What advice do I have? Sorry, just uh, since we get these questions in the chat room. What advice do I have for fellow Canadians on tomorrow's vote? Other than don't. And what do you think we will see from these statists in the aftermath? Well, I'll tell you. I'm glad to have an iPod uh, touch, a little iPod touch. Because uh, if Isabella is, is watching a show or something, she quite likes Dora. So if she's watching a show, I'll watch and comment a little bit. But, you know, every now and then I'll sort of dip into read some news or whatever and see if I can come up with anything useful for the Adam versus the Man show. Remember, 7 p.m. Monday nights Eastern Standard Time on RT.com. Uh, I'm usually on Mondays. But I'll tell you what is on the other side of struggling with the question of politics is, is boredom with politics. Is boredom with politics. Um, there is a suspension of disbelief that is necessary for art. Uh, the suspension of disbelief is, you know, you're, you're sitting watching Hamlet and you have to forget that you're in a probably uncomfortable, rather sticky and creaky seat watching people yell at a middle distance who've learned their lines and who aren't actually uh, in Denmark <laughs> plotting the uh, murder of their uh, uncle. And so you have to sort of suspend disbelief. And if you can't do that, and bad art doesn't allow you to do that. But if you can't do that, then it just becomes a rather boring and bad spectacle. And so the same thing is true of politics. Um, people have um, – somebody put a poster, I think, up somewhere up on Facebook of, of me, uh, and the, the caption was, um, Hitler's about to get into power. Don't vote. <laughs> okay. Um, 
the idea that defensive voting is going to achieve something and so on. Look, if you want to vote, go vote. I mean, who am I to tell you what to do? I'm nobody to tell you what to do. I just sort of put forward arguments and it's up to you to process them as you see fit and uh, if the arguments are compelling and, and so on and, and, and decide what you want to do from there. I'm not going to go and vote. Uh, I'm not. I think the last time I voted, um, I spoiled my ballot uh, and that was about it. And I think those are counted. Uh, and maybe they're sort of reported as a protest votes or something like that. But but people don't know what you're protesting. You know, simply spoiling a ballot, you know, it may mean that uh, you are a Nazi who doesn't like all of the middle-of-the-road candidates. It could mean that you're a fascist. It could mean that, uh, I don't know, you're a, I don't know, Molotov-throwing, Molotov-cocktail-throwing anarchist. Nobody knows what you're protesting when you do that kind of stuff, and, and it doesn't really matter. So, uh, no, I'm going to spend time with my family and maybe some friends and um, enjoy that particular piece of interaction. Uh, it's a multi-generational process to free the world. It's uh, going to be a long, long time, measured in centuries. So I really don't think what you do tomorrow is going to be that important. So I just wanted to point that out. So uh, I had a question. It's basically like this morning I woke up and and realized something pretty huge. Um, and I guess just to to summarize, um, so I woke up uh, and realized that like I've been going from thing to thing, uh, person to person, uh, organism to organism, like trying to fill a void that my parents left in me. Uh, through abandonment and um, I've been looking you know e externally instead of internally and um, so I realized that my parents by not giving a damn um, have conditioned me to, to not have self-love and um, obviously be codependent and I'm wondering how to uh, grow the self-love in myself. Um, and I, I got the idea, aside from like uh, thinking about stuff and journaling and everything, like maybe it's just a, a matter of deciding what to do um, to show that I, I uh, to show that I care for myself, like um, like taking better care of myself because I've, I've got like a rather of problem with uh, self-neglect. Right, right. Okay. Okay, uh, there's no there's no clear or absolute answer to this, so I'm just going to share with you some of my thoughts, and I also wanted to compliment you on what is an enormously brave and vulnerable question, uh, because there's a lot that you're talking about there just by bringing this question up. So I first of all just wanted to really you know thank you for the trust that you have shown in in talking about this, and I'll I'll tell you some of the stuff that I've worked with. And whether it fits for you will, of course, be up for you to decide. But I'm not going to give you any kind of decisive answer, but I'll tell you what I've thought about this in terms of, of growing self-love. So when I first began to look at my own history and really began to realize just how much went so wrong in the way that I was, I hate to even say raised, but the way that I, the environment in which I, I grew up, and I began to, in my mind, divide this issue of self-love into two categories. And I had a vision. I, even, I think I even dreamt this. If I were to check, check my journal of the time, I'm, I'm sure I would find this dream because I remember it quite vividly. 
there if you want to build a castle called self-love the first thing to recognize for me was that i was not starting on a level playing ground i was starting with a crater i was starting with where an an asteroid of abuse and and indifference and neglect and so on had had struck the ground and created a big smoking crater that was unstable and tricky to work with. And if I had tried to build my castle called self-love without recognizing that there was a smoking, unstable crater there, it would have just fallen down because I'm not building on something solid. So the first thing that I began to work on in the question of self-love was to say to myself, first of all, I need to repair the damage done before I start building. In other words, I have to undo the negative self-talk that I had inherited or had been inflicted on me before I could begin the actual active and positive process of building self-esteem. In other words, I had to stop ripping myself down before I could think about building myself up. So, I mean, what I did was, and this is, you know, I always say, talk to a therapist, talk to a therapist, but, you know, what I did was I began to list all of the ways in which I thought it had affected me, all of the negative experiences that I'd gone through, all of the abusive and destructive experiences I'd gone through as a child and as a teenager. What was the what was the layout what was the shape of the crater how much smoke was in there how many bodies were strewn around and i began to undo that and you undo that simply by differentiating the organic from the inflicted the organic from the inflicted and so i began to sort of say well here are things that i say to myself you're this you're that you're the other right and then I, I looked to the source. Did this come from facts, right? Did this come from facts? So say, I'm unimportant. I'm unimportant is one of the things. I don't, I don't matter. I'm unimportant was one of the things I said to myself when I was younger. I'm unimportant. I don't matter. And then I would say to myself, okay, well, where did that come from? What is the source of that crater, that particular crater called I'm, I'm not important? I'm inconsequential. And did it come from empirical facts? Well, of course not. It came from people's language around me when I was a child. And so the source of that crater was somebody else's asteroid. It wasn't the natural lay of the land. It wasn't something I'd done to myself. This is something that I had to adapt to. Or, as it felt at the time, or die. Because if somebody around you who has power over you as a child has a particular perspective or opinion of you, then to challenge that, for me at least, raised the possibility of escalation of abuse. Right? So if people said, or people had the opinion, you're inconsequential, and if I were to oppose that or fight that opinion, then that would cause an escalation either a verbal or physical abuse. So it's just kind of, uh, okay, I'll absorb, I'll inter absorb and internalize that because tragically, that is the safest thing that I can do in this environment. And we all have these, you know, those of us who've gone through these kinds of histories, we all have these lists of statements about ourselves. 
and you just you trace them back to their source. And so there are the, the primary ones, which is you know just the way which people explicitly or implicitly the way that they interact with us, right? They either say you're X, Y, and Z, or through their actions they imply very concretely that you're X, Y, and Z. You know, they may not say you're inconsequential, but if they never ask your opinion about everything or oppose every opinion that you have, that's pretty much the same thing, right? And so there is the primary statements, which are the statements made about you explicitly or implicitly, and then there are the secondary effects of those statements. So uh, if, if somebody says to you, or if the family mythology becomes, you're the clumsy one, then it's entirely possible that as people are waiting for you to drop stuff and waiting to giggle at you dropping stuff or waiting to reinforce that stereotype, that you may become clumsier, right? So then there's the you're clumsy, and then there's the evidence that arises from the statement, right? And so it's important to differentiate those two because the second can look like evidence for the first, right? So if somebody says you're clumsy and then you become sort of self-conscious and don't want to drop anything and this and that and the other, and then you end up dropping more or tripping because you're so worried about dropping whatever you're holding, then people will say, aha, you see, she is clumsy, but that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's important to unravel that. So that's a process that you just kind of have to go through. I think you just have to differentiate, right? It's all about slicing and dicing, differentiating from the blob called self you must, I believe, slice and dice and differentiate yourself into that which impacted you from outside, that which you internalized, that which is organic to you, that which is natural to your being and so on. Uh, and this is with the idea of just trying to figure out what is you and what is the impact of others on you, both positively and negatively. And through that process, you can level out the crater in the ground. And you can make a flat ground, you can, and that is solid enough to lay a foundation on. Now, the solid enough to lay a foundation on thing, the castle that you actually start building called self-love, I don't, I've, maybe there's some shortcut I don't know about, but the shortcut that I, would, that I have found, sorry, the only way that I have found to make it really work is this. You simply have to do good. You simply have to do good. Self-esteem fundamentally to me, is not a conversation with myself. Self-esteem for me fundamentally is the inevitable results of my objective actions. It's the inevitable results of my objective actions. So once I've got a level playing field and I'm starting to build this cathedral, then I have to say to myself, okay, well, what is good and virtuous behavior in this circumstance? And so if good and good behavior in this circumstance is, I don't know, having a conversation with someone when I'm scared to, even though I know it's necessary, then you just, I just would have to have that conversation. I just have to have that conversation. There are no particular shortcuts. I can't pretend that I did when I didn't. Well, I guess I could, but that's not very healthy. So you just have to do the right thing. So if you have certain things where you lack self-care, you just have to grit your teeth. And you have to do that self-care, right? If you're avoiding going to the dentist, uh -huh. you just have to go to the dentist. Like you just have to do the stuff and your self-esteem accumulates from the objective evidence of what you're doing. If you are, um, you know, if you're in, uh, if, if you want to apply for some job but you're scared of rejection, you just have to apply for the job. I mean, we're about, or at least I'm about, reason and evidence, Right. And so the reason is knowing the right thing to do and the evidence is have you actually done it or not. 
uh, if you're afraid to speak up for yourself, if you're afraid to express your needs in your relationships, then I believe if, if it's the right thing to do, and I think it is, then yeah, honesty is the first virtue. So you are honest about your needs and preferences in relationships. You just have to do that stuff. And the actual actions that you take, those are the bricks by bricks that you build your positive self-love and self-regard out of. Not out of just a self-conversation. The undoing of the creator is, I think, a self-conversation. But the building of self-esteem and self-love, the building of that actual castle, that's empirical bricks. And that is the actions that you take in accordance with your virtues. Does that, uh, does that help at all? Right, right. Especially the second part. Um, it, was, it was something along the lines of what I was thinking, too. Um, oh, good. <laughs> that's good. For some reason, I... I want to tell you about like I've how I've 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 moved from like my my whole life my whole life I've like when I was young like I had stuffed animals I had a dog um, when I got older I had friends and then there was a dating relationship and then you know like I moved from thing to thing trying to get love. And I just need that for myself to build that for myself. Yes, I, uh, I think so. Because the great thing about only accepting empirical actions for yourself is that then it shall follow as night follows day. You shall only accept empirical actions from others. And that, to me, is the foundation of a moral life, which is not to ex- – not to – accept people's intentions or their stated goals, but to work empirically from what they're actually doing. And that, is, that starts with you. That starts with you saying to yourself, I'm not going to accept mere good intentions. Well, I want self-love. Well, I want to be happy. Well, I want, it's like, what am I actually doing to achieve it? And to me, self-love is as an essential a project as if you're 300 pounds overweight, losing weight. And losing weight requires intentionality, but it certainly is not limited to intentionality, right? So you can't lose weight unless you want to, but merely wanting to isn't going to do it. To lose weight, there are specific empirical actions that you need to take. You know, put down this piece of food and pick up that barbell or whatever it is that you're going to do that uh, is, is sort of a safe and healthy way to lose weight. But your body will not respond to your intentions, your body will only respond to your empirical actions. And through having that standard for yourself, you automatically what, – whatever standard we have for ourselves is automatically the standard we're going to have for others, no matter what we say to ourselves consciously or not. I believe that whatever standard we fundamentally have for ourselves and the way to escape the danger of people's intentionality, you know, well, I was doing the best I could. Well, I didn't mean to hurt you, blah, 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 right? You misunderstand. You don't, you don't get it. This is not my goal. I didn't really want to do that and so on, right? It's like – if you, don't, if you have that standard for yourself where you can talk yourself in and out of things, then you'll have that standard for others. But the best way to save yourself from the exploitation of dangerous others is to have the standard called empiricism, which is the scientific standard, which is the philosophical standard, which is the free market standard. Right? The way that you save yourself from manipulation by others is to have the standard called empiricism. Somebody says something that really hurts you, they say well, – what they'll immediately say is, I didn't mean to hurt you. But that's not enough. Language isn't enough. 
And so you have to have the standard of empirical actions for yourself, and that will free you from manipulation by others, in my opinion. Fabulous. Uh, thank you. You're very, very welcome, and I hope it goes well. And I also wanted to just congratulate you again. I know you've worked incredibly hard, and uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I hope it's paying off. But, uh, but congratulations on everything that you're doing to save yourself and also your future. You know, if you have kids, marriage, and so on, all of that. I think will be proportionately better based upon your commitment, though I know it's tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we had a question about UPV. It is completely okay to change topics. There is no set topic for this. Um, can you hear me? I sure can. Okay. Here's my brother. He has a question about it. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So uh, I've recently started reading UPV. I'm about halfway through, um, and I've seen some of your other videos, and I had a question about something that seemed contradictory. Please. Um, so early in UPV, you talk about middle truths and the null zone, and you give one specific example. Um, a private man is paid to murder another man. You call him a gun for hire, whereas if he puts on an army uniform and is told to go kill somebody, we call him a hero. And how right. one is theoretically in accordance with the greater truth, which is you shouldn't murder, but it seems like there's a middle zone where murdering is okay. Okay. Yep. My believe Later I remember on that part. In the book, you um, you talk, and this is on page eighty-eight. Um, you have a quote where you talk about if you get cancer, you can ask a surgeon to operate on you, and the reason when he stabs you, it's not immoral, is that. Uh, the surgeon is asking as a surrogate self-defense agent. Um, you talk about in your other, in some of your other videos, uh, specifically about anarchy, about private defense contractors and how one of the things that they could do is that if, for instance, a, glo a war or something was going to be started, you could, by setting up this private market sector for defense, you could pay people to defend you, and one of the methods they could use to defend a group of people would be to kill the leaders of the opposing movement. And right. I, I don't understand how that's justified any more than the army is justified. In both situations, they're a surrogate acting for the interests of the uh, the people they're supposedly protecting. And while I understand the military runs off of taxation, and that's a whole different discussion, this is a purely uh, moral and ethical dilemma that I'm having with myself. It's one of the few things I haven't been able to logic through. No, it's a great question. Uh, I, I really think it's a great question, and congratulations on piecing this stuff together. It's, it's good. We want to make sure the pieces of the jigsaw fit together. So let me just make sure I fully grasp, and I'm sorry for my slightly... <laughs> Sexy voice. I've just got a bit of a sore throat. Let me just uh, make sure I understand your question before I answer it because it would be really tragic if I didn't and then tried to answer anyway. So um, the surgeon is not stabbing you because you have voluntarily asked him to act as a surrogate agent of self-defense and cutting out the cancer in the same way as cutting out a bullet or whatever, right? Yes. Okay. Um, if you are in a free society and you are threatened with invasion, uh, then you may have a um, – you know, a sort of a DRO go and shoot Hitler, right? In which case you're asking that person to act as a surrogate of self-defense for you uh, and, and so on, right? Yes. Okay. But compared to my argument about this null zone wherein uh, one man goes and, and murders another man 
and uh, he has a green costume versus not a green costume, people just kind of blank out about that moral distinction, right? But isn't the uh, when that happens, isn't that person wearing the green costume still, at least in theory, acting in the for the surrogate defense of the group of people who live in the nation that he's supposedly defending? Right. No, that's a great point. Um, but the key thing is the word murder. Okay. Right. So, so the the man the murder is is um, uh, is generally defined as going and killing somebody not in self defense, right? Okay. Right. So, so if I just go and I don't know stab some poor homeless guy, that's murder, right? True. Whereas if the homeless guy is running at me with a chainsaw and I shoot him, try and shoot him in the leg, but I accidentally hit him in the heart or whatever, that's not the same. I wouldn't be tried for murder, right? Because that would be under the uh, the protection of self defense, right? Yes. Okay. So, so the key thing is a man who murders is initiating force, not in self defense, and so. When I say that the man in a green costume is doing the same thing, I do not mean that the man in green costume is acting in self-defense. I mean that the man in a green costume is, is murdering, is initiating force, right? So, I mean, for instance, I mean, it, it's pretty clear now, certainly, seven or eight years later, that Iraq was not about to drop bombs on America, right? Okay. Yes. No. I I, I understand that. Right. So uh, that the, they really can't claim self-defense uh, for for those actions. Now, you and I uh, can't go uh, over to Iraq uh, as private citizens and just you know force people to do stuff or shoot them, right? But True. there's there's a difference if somebody puts on that green costume, people get kind of confused and they think that there's some some sort of moral thing. Now, the I think the key difference is the universality, right? So. If I – like I clearly would have the right to dig a bullet out of my own body if I could, right? Nobody would say, well, you're, 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 you're stabbing yourself. You're trying to commit suicide. You're you know, aggressing against yourself, right? So when I say to the surgeon, please cut out my bullet or my cancer or whatever, uh, he's not doing anything that I'm not permitted to do myself, right? That we're not setting up a different moral standard. We're just outsourcing it, right? True. But that, I feel like that argument doesn't hold up uh, with the private defense contractors who can go and remove somebody from power using force who is – while the person that they're removing isn't the one holding the gun, they're the leader of the nation, say, that is going to be invading you. Well, yeah, and this – look, this comes into very complex cause and effect, and I really appreciate you bringing this up. And uh, I'll make a note here for UPB2 that I'll be a little bit more clear about this. But we are assuming, of course, that when the leader says we're going to go and invade, um, I don't know, uh, Ankapistan, <laughs> whatever we call the free society, that his soldiers are going to do it, right? Okay. Right, because if the soldiers aren't going to do it, right, so if there's some crazy homeless guy who calls himself El Presidente, who, who yells that we're going to go and invade Ankapistan, mm -hmm. and no one's going to listen to him, then clearly – to shoot him would not be a, a rational act of self-defense, right? True. So we're, we're going to assume that the leader in ordering the attacks to occur, the invasion to occur, that he's actually going to make it happen, right? Okay. We're also going to assume that if he is decommissioned in some way, right, whether that's shot fatally or disabled in some manner or mm -hmm. whatever, that – the invasion will not occur. Okay. 
Is that right? That that all that all makes sense. But then when you apply this standard to something, for instance, uh, let's take Al Qaeda, who was an organization that got together and blew up the Twin Towers, as horrible as it was, wasn't. And I may be reading into this wrong, but I feel like most of the whole Iraq situation, where the democracy thing was concerned, that was just a, a fumble. We're gonna we'll we'll deal with that later. But at least in some level, the idea was to go in and at least kill Al Qaeda for our own defense purposes. And we but Al Qaeda was never. No, Al Qaeda was not in Iraq. Or okay, not in Iraq, but wherever we're going. I think we're going to Afghanistan right now. Somewhere we were looking for Bin Laden. Well, sure, and and of course, I think uh, America would have the right, uh, or a free society would have the right to deal with that as a criminal affair, to deal okay. with that as a criminal affair. Okay. Right. Which and that's what they originally tried to do. Right. Is that they went to the Afghan government, and they mm-hmm. said, "We want Bin Laden. Yeah. Give give him to us." And the Afghani government said, "Well, where's your proof?" Mm-hmm. Right, I'm not to hand over citizens to you to do God knows what to. Or they knew America was going to do horrendous things to Bin Laden, True. so they said, "Well, listen. I mean, based on due process, you have to provide us some evidence because that's what it means to have some sort of, um, uh, I don't know, what do they call those treaties where they hand over people? I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm on cold meds. I'm stoned, man. Um, oh, cool. uh, extradition treaties, right? So you have okay. to have a, to have an extradition treaty." means that you have to supply some evidence, right? You don't just get to say, well, Joe Bob has pissed me off, so give him to me so I can throw him in jail. Okay. Right, so the Afghani government said, okay, you want bin Laden, great. Then uh, let's have the evidence that you need to provide in order for us to extradite bin Laden. And America refused to provide that evidence. Fair enough. And so there's no right then to go and, and invade the whole country. I mean, certainly, yeah. I think you would consider it fair. Uh, I believe that yeah. um, George George W. Bush uh, couldn't go to, I think, Switzerland to receive some award because he was going to get arrested for war crimes, right? So there are certainly some significant sections of European of the European population and even the, the European uh, legal system who <laughs> regards George Bush as a war criminal. Okay. And they need to, if they want to, arrest him and try him and provide the evidence in a rational context. What they don't get to do is start carpet bombing America, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So you would not consider that just, right? True. True. Even though I think there's far more evidence – anyway, let's not get into that. That's a whole other topic. Anyway, so so the reality is that if somebody is in charge – of an army and on their say-so, the army invades, then they are causing the invasion. Okay. Yeah, and, and this, so this kind of comes back. To, and, and sorry, this doesn't mean that the individual soldiers do not have a moral responsibility. They may or they may not have a moral responsibility. So, for instance, uh, there are soldiers who in, in World War One, and this happened not just in World War One, but has happened in most wars throughout history – there are soldiers who are told, you damn well get out of your trench and you go running across no man's land with your guns ablazing, or I'm going to shoot you in the head right now. Yeah. And this happened on both sides of the, um, of the war in World War I continually. Uh, it's very hard to get human beings to kill each other. It's very rare. Yeah. Majority of people in the Second World War, majority of soldiers never fired the weapons at an enemy. 
And so in that situation, I think it's pretty hard to say to the poor bastard who has um, uh, who's basically being told to go and kill or be killed that he's morally responsible. You know, there's a there's a um, and this can sometimes be used in a deceptive manner. There's a book that recently came out about pirates and the way in which pirates organized themselves in sort of the 17th and 18th centuries. It's really it's really quite a fascinating book. But the number of pirates who were stolen and uh, sort of coerced into being pirates was far fewer than it appeared, because one of the things that happened was that they would pretend to go and steal people. So that those people would then have the defense called, I was forced into it if they ever got caught. But they actually wanted to go <laughs> and be pirates. Uh, so it's, you know, it's complicated and confusing. So, but if, uh, if the soldiers are being forced to be soldiers and yeah. either they or their families are going to be imprisoned or killed if they're not, then what we do, I think morally, the way we look at it is to say you that – You trace back to the initiator. Yeah, that the man who's running the army is exactly the same as a man in charge of robots that can't say no. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you don't, you don't you know, shoot the robots. You shoot the guy who's going to throw the switch and make the robots attack you. Yeah, and I, I mean you, you, you laid that out in your, in your section about choice. I definitely, definitely understand that. So, uh, yeah, I mean look, I think you and I both understand that a green costume does not change your moral nature. No. And, uh, and that's really my argument. So a man who is acting in self-defense can do so whether he's in a green costume or not. Because the right is universal, it can be transferred to somebody else, right? So uh, yeah. I can ask someone to act as my bodyguard, and mm -hmm. that person gains the right to protect myself just as I gain the right to protect myself. And if it should turn out that somebody wrestles the gun from him and then I become his bodyguard by shooting the guy who's attacking him, nobody's going to say, well, you know, that's, that's different because he, you're not yeah. his bodyguard. They just say, well, that's, yeah. that's a shame or whatever, but it's a universal standard. So I hope that uh, that helps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll have, to have to think about this for a bit. But yes, that definitely cleared up a lot. I appreciate – A, I appreciate that. B, <laughs> really great questions. I mean I love, I love the UPB discussions. They're, they're the one things – not the one things. They are the, the discussions that most make my brain sweat coagulated blood because <laughs> it's so hard to work with UPB. It really, really is hard, hard, hard to work with UPB. It's uh, – if you've ever seen the movie uh, Wally, you know, like this little yeah. robot goes around and he tries to get – all of these little – like he's, he's in a mountain of garbage and he tries to you know, squeeze them into these little boxes or whatever. But to me, it's like there's this mountain of garbage called ethics out there and I feel like I'm trying to squeeze and it's really, really hard uh, to, to, to make this stuff work because I'm constantly falling into the quicksand of my historical propaganda with regards to ethics. So I, I really appreciate those are great questions. Uh, please, please call back, you know, underline and, and critique and, uh, you know, whatever we can do to beat this, this theory into a better shape, uh, I hugely appreciate. And uh, so, yeah, please call back in if you have any other, uh, well, not if, when, when you have uh, other issues uh, and, uh, and problems with it, because uh, I really do want to uh, keep working to improve the way the theory is communicated. I still believe that it is the way to go. And uh, but I don't want to just assume that. So please come come back. Yeah, sounds good. When I finish it, I'm I'll, I'm sure I'll be back. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. You're very welcome. <clears throat> Why does currency have to be gold based? Gold is just as useless as cash. The first time gold was found available, sorry, the first time that gold was found valuable. I think he means in Libya. Gold was cattle based. Money is easy to print, and when you limit the presses. 
It's better than chiseling underground with occasional genocide. Well, there is no particular reason why currency has to be gold-based. The reality, though, is that gold tends to be the medium that the free market chooses, or at least has chosen in the past. I don't generally believe that gold will be the de facto currency basis in a free market for a number of reasons. You know, gold is not uh, is not fundamental to creating stability because you can there can be shortages of gold, there can be excesses of gold. People can, people can buy it up and hoard it. There can be right. So there's ways in which gold, while in the long run I think is pretty stable, contributes to currency instabilities in the short run. Also, what if somebody finds a way to fake gold? Right. I mean, Lord knows we're doing some pretty funky stuff with molecular manipulation these days. What if somebody finds a way to turn pyrite into gold or something like that? Well, then you've got a whole big problem. Uh, I believe, I do believe that what's going to happen in the future in a free society is that currency is going to be strongly tied to the objective production of goods and services within a society. So that, that the whole point of a rational currency is to have prices and interest predictable. That's what everybody wants is prices and interest. And of course, interest is just a subset of prices, right? Interest is just the price of money over time. But to have prices to be known ahead of time, to be stable. I mean, imagine what it would be like. Imagine how your decisions would be. What kind of paradise you would live in if you knew what the price of a house was going to be in 10 years. Now, there's some stuff, I mean, computers and so on, it's going to be tough to predict and supply and demand and blah, blah, blah. But if you knew what that was going to be like, if you had a fundamental predictability with regards to prices as a whole, then a massive amount of economic waste and pointless destruction would vanish. I mean... It's one of the things I have that I'm sort of impatient uh, with with regards to environmentalism is that environmentalism should be studying currency and just about nothing else. <laughs> Environmentalists should be studying currency and just about nothing else. Because when you think of the amount of wasted shit that gets built and spoilt and decays because of screwed up manipulations of currency, think of all of the houses, what – 10, 11% of U.S. housing is vacant at the moment. Ah, look at all of the amount of environmental damage that has been wreaked because of the Fed's manipulation of currency and interest rates and other ways in which the state promoted home ownership at the expense of long-term stability and retainability. Think of these ghost cities in China built for millions or tens of millions of people which have very few people living in it because the apartments – are like 10 times the average salary. But they're built there because the government, with a centrally planned approach, wants stuff to be built. Wants stuff to be built. And so they go and build this stuff. Uh, so there's just a huge amount of, of problems. Just think, think of if the roads, if the U.S. highway system had not been built on deficit financing, which is only possible with a central bank, with a government-controlled private bank, uh, how different society would look like, how much less dependency on oil there would be. 
if people actually had to pay for their public works projects out of their existing tax base and structure, if they didn't have deficit financing, let alone war. I mean, God, talk about environmental destruction. War is about as horrendous as you get, and it only can exist. War can only happen in its modern form because of deficit financing, currency manipulation, interest rate control, and central banking. So if environmentalists were merely empirical and wanted to actually solve the problem of the misallocation of resources, which is fundamentally what environmentalism is all about, then they would have to focus on currency. But currency is spectacularly unsexy. You know, it's spectacularly unmotivating relative to, you know, pictures of baby seals and dead whales and so on, right? But uh, anyway, I just sort of wanted to, uh, wanted to point that out. Hey, Stefan. Hello. Hi. Uh, I had a question about relationships. Oh, right. Um, I guess I'm just experiencing some real fog uh, and confusion in in a particular area. I'm just wondering if maybe you might be able to point out where I could uh, maybe investigate further. But um, I'm in a place right now where I'm encountering a lot of difficulty in finding a good reason to get into a romantic relationship. Um, Do you mean get into a particular romantic relationship or just a romantic relationship in general? Just in general. Right. Okay. Um, And this would be aside from like right now, I'm not sure if uh, I want to have kids, but I I do know if if I did want to, then it's like, okay, well, (laughs) uh, I know how important it would be to have a, a rich and a very strong connection with someone. And that's something I want to pursue. But um, I guess right now I'm, I guess there's part of me that feels I should be looking for that, but I, I can't find a good reason as to why. Why to be in a romantic relationship? Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, what were your reasons before? Um, I think my reasons before were because I wanted my needs met. Do you mean um, like, okay, what kind of needs? Because, you know, when you're talking romance, we're talking about naughty bits as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, definitely I, I was interested in sex and I was interested in um, feeling like I was of value. Like I, yeah, had- I mean, to be sexually desired is a pleasurable experience, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's just with you and a mink hand puppet. Wait, sorry. Let's not talk about my stuff. We'll, we'll get back into that later. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of what else is coming up. I mean, those were definitely important factors for me. Just um, feeling attractive, feeling uh, someone wants to be with me. Someone is, uh, uh, you know, that, that sense of being cared for. Um, and I guess I'm, I feel like I'm doing a lot of that myself now. Right, right. For, my, for myself. And uh, in terms of, I guess all I wanted to say is uh, in terms of like uh, intimacy and being able to be vulnerable, I, I feel like I've really developed some relationships lately that allow me to do so. Um, so. Yeah, no, I mean, and double entendre completely meant, uh, you know, what, what need does romance serve when we don't need to fill a hole? Okay. Should we just pause and enjoy that double entendre for the moment before we yeah. move on? Uh, should we just – okay. Right. Right. No, but it's a, it's a real question, right? When, when I don't have dysfunctional needs that need to be met in a romantic relationship, then what is um, – you know, what is it for? 
Right. No, and, and look, I mean, I think that um, uh, people go through this when they have fundamental changes. So you're not alone in this at all. Right. So, so for instance, right. So let's say somebody's a, a pretty heavy drinker, right. And so their social life and their friends and so on kind of revolve around drinking, right. <laughs> what the hell happened to my voice? They're drinking. <laughs> and, and so when they stop drinking, then they sort of say, okay, well, wait a sec. What is a friendship, right? Like if it's not hanging out and getting drunk, if it's not going to bars, then what, what is a friendship, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a very, very important question to have, right? Uh, when, whenever you make fundamental changes in your value systems, your relationships are called into question. That's why people don't really like to make fundamental changes in their value, in their values, right? Because it steps you off the conveyor belt onto what? Some opposite conveyor belt, some deep space, some endless falling, some rocket propelled thing. We don't know, right? But it takes you off, right? And there was somebody who posted on the board about um, problems they were having with a relativist, right? But if you abandon relativism for the self-contradictory foolishness that it is, it's not your relationship to virtue that fundamentally changes. I mean, I kind of think it is, but, but what shows up much more immediately is your, the change in your relationship with others, right? So you had a template called romance is good for X, Y, and Z, right? Good for sex, good for self-esteem, good for, for um, feeling valuable, good for feeling cared for, and so on, right? And now that you've been working with yourself, <laughs> sorry, we lost a double entendres. Now that you've been, been um, self-stimulating, now that you've been, I'm sorry, I'm trying to thump in the bishop, I don't know. But now that you've been working with yourself for a while, you don't need that kind of affirmation or reinforcement from others. I mean, it's not like you don't need it at all, but you really don't need it as much, right? Yeah, yeah. And so now the question is, I don't think the question is, let me just be annoying and sweep aside your question. I don't think the question fundamentally is, you know, what is the point of romance? I think the question is more fundamentally, who do I want now that I don't need? Right. Does that sort of make sense? It does. And, you know, it, um, I, I, no, that does, you're right. That's a great question. And I think, I feel like a, a serious pang of um, some real despair, I guess, when you ask that question, because I realize I'm really looking for a diamond in the rough here in a very extreme way. Uh, but is that despair even yours? <laughs> maybe it is. No, maybe it is, but maybe it right. isn't. Because I'll tell you, oh man, I will tell you, when you raise your standards, my friend, you would not believe. You would not believe the pain it causes people around you. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, just to take, again, to take that typical example, which I think we can all identify with to some degree. When you say, like uh, when I was in my, oh gosh, I was like 16 or so, I went through a phase of, of heavy drinking, which lasted about three weekends. And like drinking to the point of vomiting and drinking to the point of whatever, right? And uh, I just and I got tired of it. And I didn't like the hangover, and the the fun of drinking wasn't uh, wasn't it didn't match the you know just sitting around feeling half dead on for most of my Sundays or whatever, right? And so I stopped doing it. 
And unfortunately, the friends that I had in that phase continued to do it. And it was difficult for them that I didn't want to do it, right? And this could work any number of ways, right? So there were some friends that I had, like when I was sort of 14 or 15, we played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons because we were just in such high demand in the sexual arena that we needed to retreat from that. And and anyway, let's not go on with that story. But uh, so, uh, you know, 14 or 15, I played um, Dungeons and Dragons. And then 16 or 17, I didn't. And there were friends who didn't make that transition and continued um, into their 20s and 30s playing Dungeons and Dragons. And it was painful for them that I didn't want to anymore. So I think when you say, well, when I'm raising my standards, I feel despair, it may be that it's yours. It may also be that it's the internalized people around you who feel despair that you're raising your standards. Because it leaves them behind, right. because it excludes them from your future, unless they grow, which if they're feeling a lot of despair, they may not, right? Right. Right. No, that's interesting. I, I, I don't know if this thought has any validity, but it just kind of sprang up. But um, I think part of me, part of me feels like it's so difficult to find someone who would have the same, would value the same type of introspection and nonviolence and they'd have the same values. Like part of me feels like it's actually so difficult that it's almost accepted that it's impossible. So in that case, if that, if I, if that part of me actually accepts it, then it is going to make it difficult because I actually don't believe that person exists. But. Well, that person exists in you, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Would you say that person exists in me? Yeah. Would you say that there may be a few dozen, at least, people scattered around the world who listen to the show who hold those values as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would say probably tens of thousands by now, maybe more. Mm-hmm. The impossibility. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think whether I should recycle this anecdote or not. <laughs> I really wish I feel like I'm, you know what? I feel like an old married couple with my listeners is now. I know new <laughs> stories. Everything I, I think is new is like, oh, no, no, you already said that in podcast. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Look, the impossibility is not rational because not only are you doing it, but you know of many, many other people who are doing it too. So the impossibility is not rational. And so I would argue that the impossibility doesn't come from you. The despair and the impossibility come from those around you. People avoid growth by saying that growth is impossible or growth is a lie or growth is pretense or by attacking the person who's growing as arrogant, as, oh, he's suddenly too good for us or whatever, right? And so what they want to say is that growth is impossible. And there certainly are times where growth damn well does feel impossible. It's hard, 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 right? Yeah. And the reason why people people who aren't going to grow tend to dissociate from people who are growing is they don't want to see that it is possible because that raises anxiety within them. Right. That makes makes a lot of sense. And I'm already 
I already feel like you've given me a, a very useful angle that I wasn't even, uh, I was not thinking about at all. Yeah, always look for the empiricism of the emotions. And if the empiricism isn't there, first place to look is is those emo- the emotions of those around you. Mm-mm. In your head. People you may never meet again. People you may never meet again in your life will be in your head until the end of time. Well, the end of your time anyway, right? Occupying space and I have, shots. I still, have, I still have cynical thoughts about my marriage from time to time. It's pretty occasional now. From women I haven't dated, seen in, in 10 years or, or, or 15 years. Because I know what they would say. Hmm. Or, or about free domain radio. Right. I know what people would say if I were to re-engage with them in my life. Because they're already saying it in my head. <laughs> and I know that they haven't changed because they haven't contacted me to say good job or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That re- I really connect with that. Yeah. Somebody's asked, what's wrong with Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> Let's get on to the really important topic. There is nothing wrong with Dungeons and Dragons. I think Dungeons and Dragons, I found it to be an enormous blast. It was so much fun. Uh, it was incredibly vivid for the imagination. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, sounds like Steph's, um, he's still connected, but it sounds like the audio cut off. So, Steph, if you can hear us. Uh, sorry about that. Just, Is that better? Oh, yep, yep. We can sorry, wandered out, right? Yeah, so it became an exercise in statistics and so on. Uh, and, uh, and then there were other guys who, you know, there's something fundamentally funny, at least to me, about Dungeons & Dragons, which is not mockery, but it's just generally funny. And um, there was another guy who, like, every time it would veer into comedy, would say, guys, guys, let's get serious. Let's get serious about this. Stop fooling around. It's like you realize we're sitting in a dark basement eating greasy pizza and drinking RC cola and talking about fighting gas bags with one eyes in, in our imaginations. And now you're saying, let's get serious. I don't quite follow that way of thinking. But uh, I think that um, uh, Dungeons & Dragons ideally should be a preparation. Uh, it should be rehearsal for a courageous life in the same way that comic books should be a rehearsal for a courageous life. So I don't know, gosh, it's been a while ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I watched the original Superman with Christopher Reeves. And uh, I, I found it quite moving that this, you know, because I was really into that film when it first came out in the late 70s. I you know, bought the baseball cards and, and the gum and I had like posters and I drew him and all that kind of stuff. I was really into that film. And I hope that I imbibed at least some of that idea of, of, of courage and, and integrity and so on, uh, just as I did with um, Ayn Rand's novels and so on. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, only one sneeze. Don't you hate that? Anyway, so uh, I think that Dungeons & Dragons is fine, but you don't want to get stuck in rehearsal in life, right? You you, you don't want to get stuck in rehearsal. You don't want to get stuck on practice without actually playing the game. You don't want to get stuck rehearsing the play and never actually go out and audition. And so I think that the purpose of it is to give you you know, courage and imagination and other sorts of skills in your life. And so I think that if you stay in Dungeons and Dragons, just as if you stay in comic books, you are uh, staying in a rehearsal space rather than getting out and bringing those values to life uh, in the world. So that would be my argument about that. It's not a particularly foundational moral argument, but that would be my, uh, 
That would be my approach. Uh, people have said, uh, the FDR dating site. Well, <laughs> see, that is to say that the dating site called FDR should be set up by somebody else. But why should that be? You know, if you see somebody who's attractive on the board, you can always send them an email and um, say, hey, how's it, how's it hanging? And they can reply back short, shriveled, and always slightly to the left. Hi, Steph. I hope it's okay. I'll just jump in here. Sure, you've got a little bit of cut out, but uh, let's try it again. Okay, uh, let me try this. Uh, my name is Sandra, and I'm from uh, Norway in Scandinavia. Oh, hi, you, you just pinged me on Facebook earlier today, right? Yes. Uh, I would just like to talk a little bit about my experience uh, with promoting freedom here in Norway, and then at the end, I have a question for you. Please. So, I'm a strong believer in freedom, and my life has become much more enjoyable after I accepted the premises of non-aggression principle and today I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist. It has made my relationship with my wife much better and we recently became first-time parents to a beautiful little girl. Who Congratulations! Always... Oh, how nice. How old is she? Oh, she's uh, six weeks now. Oh, man. That's a, that's a fun age. Uh, congratulations. Is she smiling yet? Yes, she's smiling. It's incredible. Oh, of course she is. She's born to cap parents. Of course she's smiling. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> go on. So um, I obviously want to give her the best possible outlook for life and make sure that she grows up with good moral values. And uh, yeah, that, that's my introduction. And, and so uh, you're from Canada. You at least live in Canada. And Norway and Canada has by many people. Uh, okay, speak up. Just try to mute my microphone higher. Well, just make sure you don't have anything running on the background. You might want to turn your wireless off if you're on a wired network just because uh, it could eat up bandwidth. You never know if Windows is downloading some update or something like that. So I have closed down most applications. Well, <clears throat> let me try and continue if it's okay. Okay, it's good. Yeah, uh, so a lot of people will compare Norway and Canada. Uh, it's both socialistic countries. Uh, as you might know, in Norway in the 70s, we found all with oil outside uh, our coast. And with the help of American corporations, we, uh, we started uh, the oil industry and we are one of the biggest oil exports today. And what we did compared to a lot of uh, Arabian nations is that we put our, uh, the income from the oil industry into a public oil fund, which now has about $120,000 per citizen. So when, you, when you're born in Norway, you actually have a wealth of $120,000 uh, in the public sector, which the politician used for stuff like school and healthcare and social services. Right. So obviously, it's very hard to argue from uh, a, a topic of eco economy and capitalism. It's basically impossible because people, we have so much money here. So, they don't care if you could get like 10% less tax uh, or whatever. They just argue that they should get more salary. And we also, uh, our salary is uh, very high, so it's very hard for Norwegian corporations to actually export uh, Norwegian manpower. And we have to do, there's a lot of few things we actually do well in exporting, and one of them is oil and fish. So uh, we're a 
also a highly nationalistic country, and people have a lot of pride in our flag, our motherland, yet or the Norwegians are introverts, and in my experience, they are actually a very depressed people. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it's not considered rude to bump, uh, bump into another person and not say, excuse, uh, excuse me. And also people rarely smile to each other, uh, which I try to do all the time. But still, we are rated very highly uh, on surveys for happiness. And Norway is like, on the top when it comes to a lot of welfare stuff. So that, made, that, that is hard uh, an argument. So obviously, I have to focus on morality. And I have been, I have been blogging about software development and technology for many years. And I just recently started blogging about freedom and anarcho-capitalism. Uh, because I realized there was a huge lack of liberal material in Norwegian. So I've been trying to fill uh, that market here uh, in Norway. Uh, I've been translating some of uh, your articles, uh, some stuff of, uh, from Hans Hermann Hoppe, and I write some of my, my own original content. So what I have focused a lot on uh, up until now is war, because uh, Norway uh, is the seventh biggest weapon export in the world, and number wow. one, and number one when it comes to the number of citizens in our country. And uh, Norwegians consider themselves very moral, but and they have a view of our country as we're giving a lot of foreign aid. As I started in the beginning, we have a lot of cash flow. I mean, it's all invested in the stock market and and bonds. But uh, we have a lot of money that we give to. Uh, poor countries in Africa, and I argue that that's just uh, destroying their economy because we have uh, toll restrictions, so we don't, we don't want to import too much of their goods. And also we are engaged in Afghanistan, and we are also heavily engaged in Libya. And the news today was that probably Norwegian uh, F-16s probably was part of the raid that killed the children of uh, their the Libyan leader, Gaddafi. But uh, so, and up until now, it's been very rewarding to actually find out about freedom and use my time to discuss and argue, and uh, especially in Norway because uh, every single individual here believes in the welfare state. Uh, all the politicians, they. Uh, basically, from left to right, it's, it's it's all just socialists, and there's rarely there's nothing there. There's no real difference, as you have talked about in the podcasts on who is in control of the country. So, but one interesting thing from my experience is that the people that contact me and uh, agree with me are mostly immigrants from other countries, such as Germany and Eastern European countries, who have come to Norway and more open to ideas around freedom. So I'm hoping you might have some tips for how I can spend my time more productive in discussion in uh, Norway, which is mainly filled with hardcore socialists and a lot of communists who want even more government control and regulations of the markets. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> why do you want to? Uh, because it gives me a lot of personal pleasure and uh, obviously after we got uh, our baby girl it's much harder to get the time to actually do blogging but I still feel uh, a lot of joy from 
from blogging, so I try to spend the evenings when the girl is sleeping. And it, uh, it, 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 it gives me a lot of pleasure, basically. Right. Okay. And uh, what? Uh, why do you think it gives you pleasure? I'm not disagreeing. I just make sure I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was. I, I grew up in a Christian family, as a lot of other Norwegians. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, I've experienced as I've looked into freedom and anarchy is that uh, when you look back on your own childhood and all all the questions and knowledge that you thought you had it's basically just it's fantasy it's like I like to say that the state is like a religion because there's so much stuff we believe in that we have never received any rational arguments for from so there's a lot of things I still believe in and I just spend time writing about Right, right. And I realize that a lot of options are wrong. And so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to time. just answer because you're uh, cutting out quite a bit and uh, I don't want to have to edit okay. this too, too, too much. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough question. I think it's important to recognize that if you have arguments from a fact, in my opinion, and in my considerable, which is not to say decisive, experience, if you have arguments from effect, well, you know, we've got this debt or, or you know, this is welfare creates dependence and there's this permanent underclass and what's going to happen when the poor run out of money or the, the government runs out of money to pay the poor and they say, oh, well, you know, we'll just, we'll cut the military or we'll do like, you, you're going to go round and round. If you have arguments from effect with people, in other words, the effects of statism are bad. Well, frankly, the effects of statism for some people are very good. And so you just end up back and forth from perspective to perspective. Arguments from a fact are like saying, this movie is good and this movie is bad. You know, even the worst movie has someone who loves it to death. Um, I remember one of the not-so-good albums I ever bought in my life was Freddie Mercury's solo called um, Mr. Bad Guy. And a friend of mine at theater school said it was his sister's favorite album. I was just like, blah, other than living on my own, what? maybe even love me like there's no tomorrow. Anyway, so... Arguments from effect will get you round and round, and they can be, you know, fun, but it's it's just batting back and forth opinions and perspectives. The argument from morality, uh, as I've argued for many years, is the way to approach it, which is to say uh, it doesn't matter what effect the government has. It doesn't matter if poor kids get to go to college because the government is paying their way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if parents get to stay home because of generous tax credits from the government. It doesn't matter. What matters is only one thing. Is the initiation of force good or bad? Is it right or wrong? If the initiation of force is right, then we can't have a government. Because everybody has the right to initiate force, and it shouldn't be granted to some and denied to others. If the initiation of force is wrong, by golly, we can't have a government, because then the initiation of force must be denied to all and not to some. Now, 
That, of course, is a five or ten minute argument. And arguments from effect can go on literally for centuries, as they have. Yes. Right? Now, this is all perfectly obvious once you see it, and I'm sure you've seen it before. Let me give you the caveat emptor, the buyer beware. The argument from morality will detonate a good deal of your relationships. Once you lay down the argument from morality, there is no turning back. You have now defined in a very clear way what is good and what is evil, what is moral and what is immoral. And if that doesn't work, you can use the against me argument, which means that, okay, so you like this government program. Am I allowed to disagree with you without being shot, without you wanting me thrown in jail? And so just by the by, uh, I try to keep up with uh, criticisms of what I'm doing because I think it's obviously fair to, to criticize uh, what I'm doing. And people have said um, that I have not been using this argument much with people. And that is quite true because I'm having people on for discussions of ideas. Uh, if I'm having people on for a debate, then I think that's – you know I, I think I'm pretty – Pretty firm and strong when it comes to debating with people, and uh, uh, I haven't had people on uh, that I'm going to have a debate with, and I don't like to jump people with uh, the argument from morality, the argument from effect, uh, because most people have never experienced it before, and uh, so I like to lead into it. I don't suggest you just drop that bomb on whoever uh, is around, but it is going to be challenging for your relationships. Now, that having been said, uh, you know, it may be somewhat valuable for your daughter as she grows up or other children that she grows up to have uh, some playmates. It can be, can be helpful. So you may want to sort of review that. Uh, I think the argument from effect is not even good as a hobby, but I think the argument from morality is so explosive that uh, it risks relationships and it's worth reviewing whether you want to do that or not. Yeah, I'm already doing it. It has uh, affected some relationships I have. Uh, but I consider myself I pretty have a strong personality, so I actually can, uh, what should I say, I mean, I can stand up for what I believe in, and I also can easily do, use the argument from morality. But some of my friends, some of my good friends, really think I'm really crazy. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, that's that's my suggestion, that if you want to, uh, you know, the um, the argument from effect is like a, fog that you can easily get lost in. But the argument for morality is like some volcano spewing sky laser that, you know, either frees people or uh, vaporizes the relationships. So, <laughs> yeah. Listen, thank I've you. got a couple of other callers, so I hope you don't mind if I move on, but thank you so much for the update and uh, please too. keep me thank posted. Uh, sorry, I think we have Dr. Mom from Mason, which I believe is a region in the South not that she's in a jar. Uh, hello. Hi. Oh, it's uh, Mr. Molyneux. Thanks for letting me on. This is Lee Heap. I, I was on as Dr. Mom one time because you published my letter about the economic issues of medicine. But uh, we're having a, you may have the biggest philosophic discussion. We had a long, long, long lasting one in our household. And this thing about defense is what my son wants me to say something about. Because he's convinced me, I have to say, you know, he has convinced me about anarchy on every front except for defense. And I guess I cannot 
I, I don't understand how in a totally anarchic society, so I'm going to be a minarchist, I guess, because I, I just don't understand how in a totally anarchic society you can deal with national defense because, or with defense, because it, it's one thing when George Washington said we shouldn't get involved in foreign wars, but it was easy back then because you knew when somebody was coming long in advance and you could, it was a physical mobilization to your shore and you could get your army ready and get ready. But we just don't have that luxury now. Now we have, a, we have warfare that's very asymmetric and a few people with the right you know, in a nation state can be you know, putting together a, a large weapon that can be shot on a missile over to us, and it, we we wouldn't, you know, we can't, you can't combat that because at the last minute you decide to make preparations. This takes a long time preparing, and I just don't see how you do that. And, and according to UPB, you say, well, if the third party is threatened, um, you know, if my, my friend is threatened by a third party, I have the right to take out that third party before he kills my friend. It's kind of similar in this situation when you have a few states that are we willing to, I mean, we could argue about Iraq, and I think some of the facts are not, not completely true that everybody cites about going into Iraq, but, you know, if you're threatening an ally of the United States, or if you're threatening us, you're doing it in such a way you can't combat that at the last minute. And I don't, I don't understand, I guess, how an anarch society, anarchic society deals with that. Because not everybody's going to be anarchic. I mean, maybe if the whole world were and everybody was peaceful and calm, but I just don't see that ever happening. It's never happened in world history. I think that's a, that's a very good question. very good objections. Uh, first of all, I agree with you completely that there is not going to be, you know, everybody goes to bed <laughs> one night and wakes up in a stateless world. There is going to be transitions uh, that are going to be, in some cases, slow, in some cases, faster. They're not going to be uniform. And uh, that is uh, how things are going to change. And if you look at something like religion, you can see that there are some Scandinavian countries where 70 to 80 percent of people are um, agnostic or atheist. And there are places in the south of the U.S., of course, and there are places in the Middle East where people are much more religious. So uh, it is a... Um, uh, there are places where it's going to take longer. The way I sort of think of it is like it's like a it's like a field with holes in it. It's filled with rain. The sun comes out, and some parts are going to dry faster, and some parts are going to dry slower. And so I agree with you that we can't wave the magic wand and say, "Well, uh, a stateless defense will be taken care of because there'll be no such thing as governments anywhere in the world." Because that doesn't explain the transition times and the transition points. So I, I just wanted to reinforce that. Uh, that argument of yours. I also agree with you completely that uh, weapons have become much less predictable, much more dangerous, and much cheaper. Uh, so if you wanted to go and, uh, I don't know, raise a city in the Middle Ages, uh, it took a lot of manpower. It took a lot of sweat. And now, of course, you can piece together some dirty bomb. Uh, you can uh, put some some poison in the water supply, you can do stuff which is pretty cheap, which is very hard to, relatively hard to detect and relatively hard to counter. And, uh, of course, is uh, incredibly destructive. So I really wanted to reinforce and, and sort of get behind the uh, the objections that you have. Um, was there anything uh, that I missed in terms of uh, before I uh, tried to at least answer th these questions from my perspective? No, but I'll tell you, water supply, you don't have to worry about it. It's smallpox that could kill 60% of the world, but go ahead. That's the one oh, I'm that's right. About. 
That's right. Now, the thing that I would like to say first and foremost is that, uh, and you know, please don't take this the wrong way, the fact that you can't imagine how it could be done doesn't mean that it can't be done. I'm, I'm not saying that's an, an answer, but uh, I don't know how my computer works really. I mean, I sort of have a vague understanding of it, but, but that doesn't mean that my computer doesn't work. Right, so the fact that that you or or I or any individual can't figure out how national how defense geographical defense can be provided without a government doesn't mean that it can't be provided. Right, there's a a famous short essay called "I Pencil," which basically describes how no human being in the world knows how to make a pencil. Uh, they could nobody can figure out how a pencil gets made. Every you know, one person makes the lead, one person makes the pen, the paint, one person compresses and 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 fixes up the wood, and one person makes the eraser, and then another person mines the metal to make that little hoop that goes around the eraser. But nobody knows how to make a pencil. Uh, so the fact that we lack knowledge of how things will work in a free society doesn't mean that they won't work. I'm not saying that's a perfect answer, but I think that's the first thing to to recognize. Um, I mean, as, as you pointed out, there were things that I didn't know about how medicine worked. That didn't mean that medicine didn't work or, or wasn't effective in some ways. So that's my first answer. The second is when it comes to defending against uh, aggression, which is really what we're talking about, defending against violence. And, and in terms of Iraq, right? So you say, well, there are some people who may have been freed from Iraq and so on. But the important thing about Iraq is not the relationship or the effects of the troops on the ground in Iraq, because that is only an effect of a much more fundamental relationship, which is the right the U.S. government has to initiate aggression against its own citizens in the form of taxation. Uh, it is the taxation and, of course, the control of currency and interest rates through the Federal Reserve that allows for this uh, these wars to, to occur. And so I don't think you want to skip over that part, because that is the essence of it. That is the no, essence I, of it. I understand that. Yeah. Right. Now, I'm not saying this answers. I'm just sort of pointing out you know, where, where I would focus your attention from an ethical standpoint. Now, when it comes to aggression from foreign nations, I would argue – and this is – again, I'm not saying any of this is a perfect argument because it's about future possibilities. But I would argue that because weapons are becoming much more dangerous – that is the very reason that we need to not have a very powerful government when it comes to foreign interventions. So, you know, there's that old argument that the Muslims hate America for their freedoms, uh, and that's why they attack. And, of course, if that were true, then the Muslims should have been attacking even more ferociously in the 19th century when Americans were a lot more free and Muslims, even proportional to now, were a lot less free. Uh, but that, of course, didn't occur. And there are countries that are freer than the United States uh, economically and politically, um, and those countries don't get attacked uh, by, uh, by Muslim extremists. The reason, of course, that Muslim extremists attack the United States is because the United States is, is arming the dictatorial regimes in the Middle East, uh, is, is intervening and overthrowing uh, regimes, is funding uh, revolutions and counter-revolutions, and is uh, generally making, uh, helping to make life fairly wretched for the local citizenry of the region. And so an excess of government power when it comes to the military increases the danger to the local citizens. Uh, rather than decreases it. And if we trace back some of the economic 
catastrophes that have overtaken the United States over the past few years uh, to the decision to not just go to war, which of course required deficit financing, which required a control of interest rates, which drove the housing bubble and the housing crash. If we look at the the fact that uh, the creation of massive government departments like the Department of Homeland Security, as if there already wasn't a Department of Defense and the FBI and the CIA and the police and the FBI and all that. That has also caused huge harm to uh, to Americans. Uh, I mean, it's a softer kind of harm. It's not like getting blown up in a trade tower, but it can be very devastating, of course, for the people who are facing or experiencing long-term uh, unemployment. So, the argument that we need a, a government with a strong national defense in order to protect the citizenry fails, I think, on two counts. The first is that it can only have that by initiating aggression against its citizenry uh, through taxes and through deficit financing. And also, it gives those governments then the power to go around the world stirring up a bunch of hornet's nests, which then fly over in the bellies of planes sometimes and do harm against the U.S. citizenry. So there could be arguments about that. The second thing that I would suggest is that, and I've made this case before, so I'll I'll keep it kind of brief, is that the question is motive. Why why would somebody want to attack a stateless society? Well, if you look at uh, Germany, uh, why did Germany want to uh, attack in in 1939, you know, Poland and and, and, I guess in 38, Czechoslovakia and so on? Why Why did Germany want to do those things? Well, it wanted to do those things for, for two reasons. One is it gained control of the tax base and, and the revenue from the tax base. And the second is it gained control of huge amounts of armaments. And the, the Skoda armaments in um, Czechoslovakia were pretty crucial to the Blitzkrieg war that broke out against France in May of 1940. Now, in a stateless society, there is no tax base to take over. You, you don't just get to go in and say, well, I'm now the new government, so all the money you were paying to the old government, you're now paying to me because there's no tax base to take over, which makes it far less – it's much less of an incentive to do that. It's like breaking into a bank where there is no money. Well, you only break into a bank because there is money, uh, and so you can't take over. The second thing is that uh, one thing I would want from a defense agency in a free society is a way of guaranteeing as far as was technologically – feasible and cost-effective, a way of guaranteeing that any weapons that I was paying for in terms of geographical defense could not be seized and turned against me. And I mean, lots of different ways you can do that. You could do sort of biometric fingerprinting on the trigger fingers. You could do retina scans in order to launch stuff, you know, those kinds of things. And so that if somebody came in and tried to take over the weaponry, it would not function for them. These things are all technologically possible, which is not to say, you know, easy or I know how to do it, but I know that these things can be done. And so if there's no tax base to invade and take over, if there's no meddling in local affairs from from the anarchic government, which of course there wouldn't be, because there would be no anarchic government, and if technological safeguards were put in place to ensure that any invasion of a free society would not result in weapons being taken over and used against the citizens, I think that's about as close as you can get to guaranteeing that uh, invasions and and these kinds of acts of aggression aren't going to occur. Does that mean that they're completely impossible? Well, no, but I think we work, uh, you know, like most people do with, with probabilities, right? Well, I guess I've heard that argument before, but, you know, before, before there was an America... 
we first of all we had wars of aggression that, uh, with Islamic takeovers of lands because not because of what we were doing to them or anything. I and mean, we can argue about right or wrong. And I guess I'd, I'd rather, rather go on the ethical principles here, but in the practical aspects here. But but I have to say, I just have to make this point that that uh, Islam broke out and, and the Wahhabists stormed across lots of the world before we did anything to them. So I'm not sure I'm ready to take the hit that this is all due to us. But but you know, people and people have conquered. You know, the barbarians—not not necessarily against Rome, but but there have been conquests for land and resources. And you're going to have people are going to be richer in an anarchic society. So you are going to have land and resources. I'm not—I don't buy that just because you don't have a standing army or you don't have a government and a taxation base. There's not banks that are going to be looting. It's land and resources. But the other point is, you know, this eye pencil analogy. The difference is, it doesn't. I don't need to develop. A pen or a pencil immediately. The problem is, if if it, you know smallpox, let's take smallpox for a minute. Not not a nuclear warhead, because when people think of weapons of mass destruction, they always think of nuclear warheads, which takes a, a nation state. It does take a big, big financial base and lots of scientific input. Uh, I mean, we trained we trained Dr. Holmes, who was Saddam's bomb maker at MIT, and then he had a lot of money behind him building a project. So. It takes a nation state to build a bomb, but it doesn't take a nation state to get, if you have a germ like smallpox, and we know it's out there in lots of different little labs around the world, it doesn't take a nation state to propagate that. And the other, the other reason that people are attacked is for religious reasons. Like I say, I mentioned the Islamic Jihad in, in 1762, before we were a nation state, but there was also, you know, we had the apocalyptics in, in Japan, I mean, they didn't get very far, but there are people that have motives that have nothing to do with robbing your bank. And if they get a hold of something like smallpox, it, it can be a devastating worldwide problem that only a a coordinated effort ahead of time to think ahead and try to come up with some counteractivity makes sense. And I just don't, you know, if we're all anarchic and we're all sitting around, we're not, unless, unless we somehow group together and, and create a, a defense intelligence agency-like agency, I just don't know how we're going to be aware of the problems out there. And I, and I do think that time is a big problem. You don't have time. You know, that's the reason, maybe you just, I mean, and if you disagree with government, you disagree with this principle. But the reason that the, the Constitution was written giving command authority to the president is that sometimes you don't even have time to have the Congress act. Congress has to act to maintain military conflict. But if things happen fast, you have to have a commander in chief. And there's a reason that they did that because they saw how warfare happens. And I'm just, I just, that's the part I don't, I don't get. I think we'd be a richer nation, we'd be a more moral nation, and everything without government. I agree with you on that, every point. But I still don't, I don't see. And just like you say, yeah, I don't know how to build a computer, but there, but, but I understand in theory how it is, and I kind of see the point. And I don't even see a pathway to this. I mean, can you give me a pathway to how we, how we, how we protect ourselves against the 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 rogue madman with the bad weapon? Well, sure. Um, no, I I, I can't guarantee any of any of that sort of stuff. But I will say this: that if what you're talking about is the most rational and cost-effective way to defend, then the majority of people will do that. Right, so if having a standing army with a quote commander in chief who has the right to commit those forces at will or whatever, if that is the best way for society to defend itself, 
then that's what the free market will provide. And they will make the arguments and they will make the case and they will provide the analysis and they will provide the statistics to prove their case. And the majority of people will, will agree to that and will do it. And you say, well, okay, if you say, well, what if the majority of people don't agree with that? Well, if the majority of people don't agree with that, then that won't happen in a democratic society either because the majority of people will not vote for that, right? So anything that is going to occur in a democracy requires a majority participation, you know, to, to work. And if the majority of people accept an, the case that the, the current statist way of organizing national defense is the best and most effective and safest way to do it, then that's what the free market will reflect. And, and so you still don't need a government to achieve that. And you do, of course, one of the problems with governments is when you get a coercive solution in place like taxation and military funding, it tends to be extremely unresponsive to mm -hmm. changes in the environment, to changes in the situation, to changes in technology. And so if at the moment this is you know the, the the way that the governments do it is the very best way to do it then people will fund that a majority of people will fund that and it will be voluntary and it will be effective with the plus of course that as threats diminish so will people's desire to fund these agencies which is exactly what you want to have happen and if threats increase of course then the funding will go up because they'll make the case for that but it still can remain voluntary and still achieve everything that you wanted to achieve without the risk of uh, allowing a coercive institution to gain a monopoly of taxation and war powers and your defense your defense your DRO or your defense organization it will have the power to do things covertly because you know the free market generally responds to overt over the you know above board market responses, I see and I see the need. I see you know I respond to a demand. That's not always the case when you have asymmetric warfare. It may be that the majority of people don't see the problem. So is is your DRO able to act somewhat independently? And if so, then how do you prevent it from becoming the bad guy on your own block? Well, I won't go into this um, the whole book with the whole section about that. You know, how do, how do you prevent a DRO from becoming a new government in practical anarchy? So I won't go through the argument here. If you want to, you can check that out. It's a free book uh, on my website. But I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember your your first part right before I had my bite of banana. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to remember your your first uh, point. What was it again? Well, I, I, I maybe I don't remember either. I mean, I my point is that it that not every if you're if you're oh covert. I'm sorry, covert. I remember now covert. Yeah, yeah. look. I don't pay, you know, so if, if I have an insurance company, I don't pay for every detail of their policies. I pay for security, right? So if you have a defense agency, people aren't paying for whether it's covert or not. What they're paying for is, is two things, maximum security and minimum cost, right? That's, that's what they want, the maximum security for the minimum cost. Now, if covert operations give them greater security and or less cost or some combination thereof, then that's what will happen because the free market will supply that. If they find out that these covert operations are being used in some negative or destructive way, then people will simply cancel their contracts with that DRO company and go with somebody who's not doing that. So that's it's the, it's the general free market. You know, how do you prevent an insurance company from failing to pay, pay its claims? Well, through the legal system, of course, which would exist in a parallel form in a free society, and also through the fact that the contracts are voluntary. 
so that if an insurance company gets known for not paying off its claims, people would just cancel their contracts with that insurance company and go with one who has a better reputation. Of course, it might be too late when the defense contractor doesn't do the right thing. Well, this- sure, but that, but that all that means all that means is that the defense contractor is going to have to work extra hard to make his case. Uh, to 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 be as above board, to be as cost effective, because everybody's going to say, "Well, if I may make if I make a mistake on this, then I'm really toast." Which just means that people are going to have to be really really careful, and they're going to have to review, you know, and and there's going to have to be independent agencies that monitor this, and you know, people are going to have to be extra special careful about this. Now, if you say, "Well, if all of that doesn't work," well, yeah, look, every every system can fail, uh, but uh, I genu- I genuinely believe that a free system. Uh, has a way of re-energizing itself, of re-innovating itself, of rewriting itself that a status system doesn't. I would not say that the average American is well-served in terms of security and sustainability, and sustainability, right? I mean, you can you can make yourself very secure by locking yourself in a box with no holes. It's just not very sustainable because, you know, we like oxygen, <laughs> if I remember rightly. So I don't think that the current defense establishment is serving Americans in terms of peace, in terms of sustainable security because it's so massively in debt and, uh, and is causing uh, problems overseas. Uh, so that is a system that to me, and I think there's good reasons to argue, doesn't work. And I think there's good reason to believe that another system will work by not provoking uh, foreign uh, governments and foreign peoples. Right? As you know, the people in Libya who were getting tear gassed picked up the tear gas canisters and saw made in the USA. How is that going to make Libyans or the million dead Iraqis or the families of the million dead Iraqis, how is that going to make them feel about Americans? Well, pretty angry. If you remember how you felt on the morning of 9-11, how you wanted vengeance and how you felt angry, well, the Middle East is experiencing a 9-11 every day. And um, they probably feel pretty much the same. Uh, as uh, as Americans and others did who were uh, angry, and rightly so, about that uh, that horrible crime. So, yeah, it may not be a perfect system, but the, the whole point is that it remains voluntary, it remains uh, as, as efficient and as cheap as possible, and, uh, you know, if it is too late uh, at some point, then, you know, that's uh, something that can happen to every system. I just generally believe that peace and voluntarism is going to provide better and more sustainable solutions. Well, thank you. Well, I, I appreciate that you're not convinced, but I certainly do appreciate that you brought up some, some great arguments. If you have some time, feel free to page through some of uh, Practical uh, Anarchy. And also, uh, let me just see if I can dig this up. I don't know if you're in the chat window, but I read a good monograph by Hans Hermann Hoppe um, about the provision of national defense in a free society. And I will see if I can put this in the chat window. Yeah, yeah, we can get it. Yeah. The myth, the myth of national defense, I think it was. Uh, let me put this in the chat window. Ooh, that's quite the URL. <laughs> let me try that again, Jeffy. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple books. I'd recommend the book Disinformation and also the book Saddam's Bombmaker. It's about Dr. Hamza, who was the MIT-trained nuclear physicist who worked for Saddam. And uh, there's a lot of there is a lot of disinformation out there about what you know. I'm not saying what we said. The reason we went into Iraq, I don't think, was exactly why we said we went into Iraq. But nevertheless, 
I'm, I am kind of tired of hearing this mantra, oh, they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Just because they didn't find a nuclear weapon sitting on the launch pad does not mean that they were not in the process of building a very aggressive nuclear weapons program and a bioweapons program. And we have their bioweaponeers. So we know there were issues, but but that's I mean, that's too big a discussion to go in here. But those there's some very good references there. All right, so I will check those out. Anarchy in return. Thank you. It sounds Thank like a fair you. exchange of hostages. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. Thanks very much. Those are really really great uh, great questions. Thanks, Sam. All right. And I uh, could have used the against me argument, but anyway. <laughs> So, do we have a time? We have time for one more short question. Uh, somebody's asked, how's hi, the DRL? Stefan. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, hi. Um, did you want to take that question? That no, no, no. Live is better than typed. Great, thank you. Uh, first, I just need to say that it's a great honor to speak with you, and I've listened to all of your podcasts and uh, read uh, RTR. And um, Wait, you're saying you've listened you to all of them? All of them. <laughs> oh, shit. You mean I really have to come up with something new? Hang on. Let me lie down. I'm going to put a cold compress on my head and see if I can come up with something new. <laughs> Thank possible you. Possible use of my time. Uh, <laughs> I have no, no question. Um, so uh, my question has to do with a relationship that I um, had before I came to FDR. Um, and uh, it has to do with my friend. Uh, let's, let's call him Bob to, uh, to use a throwback. Um, so uh, Bob, uh, his political philosophy is basically fascistic. Um, he he uh, is basically an advocate of um, what the most sort of uh, potentially irrational and sort of conspiratorial anarchists sort of uh, say say is coming about, like a one world government. He he thinks is is ideal. I, I mean, and it's. Uh, I mean, it's just horrible and, and a brick wall. And, and I've asked him, um, you know, uh, if like if I decided not to pay taxes and sort of boycotted the government and stuff like that, like, you know, would you advocate um, that that I be aggressed against for that? And, you know, uh, in so many words, he, he, he did say yes. I mean, and not even so many words. I, I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> Pretty direct. Well, you have to admire his integrity, if not necessarily his rationality. But uh, yeah, you got to admire people who stick to the logical, you know, conclusions of their premises. I mean, I think consistency is the surest road to wisdom, if wisdom is possible. Because if he's not bothered by advocating violence against you, then at least there's possible some possibility of being wise about the relationship. But sorry, go on. Yes, no, um, I absolutely think that you're right about that, and he does uh, make a big. Effort. I mean, and, you know, he's a very intelligent uh, man, and uh, and so he is. He is very consistent, and he, you know, I think he does have good integrity um, about about some things. Um, but uh, you know, it's been about two years that I've been talking to him about anarchy, um, and uh, you know, we're both twenty years old right now, so pretty young, um, and so. You know, what? I'm kind of what young. I'm sorry, it went to my bad oh. ear. Let me just switch my hearing. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm what I'm really looking for is sort of um, an idea from you as to more signs uh, uh, that I can look for to say, you know, 
maybe I should look for closure on this relationship or I can continue on and hope that sort of I'm able to, to change his mind. Right. That's a, that's a very, that's a very good question. And, you know, my usual caveat is I can't tell you, uh, I can give you some ideas that I would try, but obviously, um, you know, a relationship, how long have you known the guy for? Um, it's been about three years. Uh, we made friends uh, uh, senior year of high school, and, and we've been keeping in close touch uh, uh, when we went to college also, and, and we see each other a lot when we're both uh, in, in New York City. Right, right. Right. Well, what was his childhood like? Um, well, he's from a, a pretty affluent family. Um, they have, you know, just a wonderful uh, brownstone in Manhattan, and um, uh, his both of his parents went to Yale. Uh, and um, I mean, I find them very nice people. And, and when we have dinner together, um, you know, it's always very nice. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the thing that uh, that that I see as as potentially being there during his childhood is is sort of a uh, lack of being able to sort of go on his own initiative and make his own decisions and maybe like an over kind of controlling thing, which which makes sense with with what you've you've said in the past. And uh, do you know how your friend experienced um, what is usually called discipline when he was a child? Um, I, I honestly, I honestly can't say that I do. And well, I, yeah, I, mean, I think that I would be uh, an important totally for, for not knowing that. No, it's not, not, a, it's not remiss because we're generally, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing in society as a whole, right? I mean, and you can tell from this tone that I'm going to wax philosophical, but I'll try and keep it short. I'm ready. You know, we're allowed to ask about a lot of things, uh, political beliefs, religious beliefs sometimes as well. But but when people are talking about the state, what they're talking about is authority and conformity and punishment. And that doesn't mean that the state is the only thing that, that has a relationship on these. I mean, in a free society, there will be authority, there will be conformity, and there will be punishment. It's just that, there, you know, authority is an overhead and uh, conformity uh, suppresses Creativity, which has an economic cost, and punishment is expensive. So in a free society, these things will work to be minimized. But when people are talking about authority and conformity and punishment, particularly when they're young, although it's not only when you're young, most people go through their lives without examining this, is the first question that we should ask ourselves when we're talking about the state is, in order to remain objective, is what is my historical relationship with authority and conformity and punishment? Or, to put it another way, what is my historical relationship with virtue? And how was virtue and right behavior and good behavior inculcated in me when I was a child? Because if you don't know these things about yourself, then when you're talking about the government, it is undifferentiated, it is unanalyzed, and therefore, I think, can't be objective. Yes, I mean I think that that is 
a great way to ask him, which is, um, you know, how, how were you taught about what's good and, and what's bad? And, you know, how did you learn about virtue? And then, um, although, of course, it's a little bit more delicate asking about asking about discipline. I, I don't know. I guess I guess I needed, you know, some of your guidance um, to, to really know that that was that was what I needed to do or to remind me that that was what I needed to do. Yeah, what I found helpful is, uh, and I had I had a conversation with a determinist about this. Uh, it was relatively recent, uh, a couple of months ago, and um, the important thing is to reassure people that this is not about winning or losing the argument, right? So if somebody comes at me and says, you know, we should have a one-world government and you should be punished for not going along with the general social order of statism or whatever then I, you know, I could interrupt them and I can say, well, okay, hang on. This is not to prove or disprove my case or your case, but just so that I can understand where you're coming from, I'd like to get a bit of a history because you're, you know, you're very certain about this kind of stuff. And maybe you're right, but I have sometimes found that people, particularly when they're younger, who are very certain about stuff are going off the momentum of history of their childhoods. And that's why it seems very clear to them. And that's why it seems so certain, because they're just kind of repeating and expanding upon what they experience as children. So this has no bearing on whether you are right or I'm right, but it is a way of exploring whether there may be influences that are causing our debates to not get anywhere. Because if you keep having a debate with someone and you don't get anywhere, it's because you're not talking about what's really going on. But that's that's my... That's the most fantastic caveat. Yeah, and so just say, look, I, let's let's put aside the question of one world government and 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 taxation and deficit financing and and national banks and interest controls and let's let's put all of that aside, and let's just let's just make sure that we don't have, have any historical debris that is interfering with us making progress on in this conversation, and I think that that's just a sensible thing to do. In general, particularly when you have repetitive conflicts with people or you have debates that just seem to go round and round and when debates get bewildering and when debates seem to be like shifting sands or fog uh, going through your brain and when definitions change and nobody notices it and when you get all of those, these are all signs to me at least of unconscious defenses. And if those unconscious defenses are not examined and are not understood and are not bypassed in some way, then you're just not talking about what's really going on and you can't make any progress, if that makes any sense. I completely accept that. You know, like I've always sort of felt that it's like, it's like I'm having a debate with someone and I don't know that there's a sniper in a bell tower who's zoomed in on their forehead and it's going to shoot them if they admit that they're wrong. <laughs> now, if I don't know that, then I'm going to be bewildered and confused by the lack of progress in the debate, right? Yeah. Like if I don't see the sniper, if he doesn't say, hey, by the way, <laughs> you see that laser, it's not just a moving zit. It's actually a sniper scope on my forehead, right? So if you don't know that somebody has a, quote, sniper in the bell tower in a debate, and this is why debates about UPB can get so volatile and confusing for people, is because to admit a lack of knowledge about virtue is to feel one's own personality unravel and one's own entire culture to unravel. Because if we confront a lack of knowledge of virtue in ourselves, what we do is we say, okay, holy crap, 
for like 20 years, I've been told what is right and what is wrong. And if society doesn't know what is right and what is wrong, but merely was using morality to get me to obey, that says some pretty damn terrible things about my society, about my culture as a whole, about its knowledge of virtue, about its knowledge of me wanting to be virtuous, but also about using my desire to be good to get me to conform to power, to get me to obey those in power. A knowledge of virtue combined with a use of virtue to control people is pretty damn nasty stuff. So when you're talking about ethics with people, you're pushing them close to this precipice of disintegration, of dissolution, of self, of authority, of culture, of country, of everything. Yeah, if you pull out the right part of the foundation, the whole building crumbles down. Right. And so there is a sniper at the bell tower for a lot of people when it comes to philosophical debates. Just as there is, like if, if you're talking to uh, people about uh, aggression towards their children, if they're aggressing towards their kids, well, if they question that and if they begin to say, oh my God, I really should not be attempting to, quote, instruct my child through aggression because all I'm teaching him to do is to obey someone in power. And yet, I will never say to my child, obey me because I'm bigger and stronger. I will always say, you should do the right thing and obey me. It's good to obey me. And I'm going to punish you if you don't because you're bad. So I'm using morality as a guise to control somebody else when, in fact, I'm merely exerting the power of authority. Yeah, and that well, blowing if you up in push- someone's face is very painful. Oh, my God, because then it's their own personal history. You know, my parents and their parents and my teachers yeah. and, and then what I've been doing. And, and you know, to, to have to apologize to a child, oh, my God. Oh, my friend, it is, it is a hard thing to do. I mean, I do it at least once a day. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Isabella was um, jumping off the couch the other day. And uh, I had my legs crossed uh, and I was sort of encouraging her. But she jumped too close to my leg and she tried to avoid my leg. And then she fell and she turned her ankle a little bit. And she cried. No, I mean, I know it wasn't my fault. I know, you know, but, but nonetheless, I felt terrible, terrible. Because it's like, oh, man, I could have moved my leg before. I could have seen that coming. These are the things that you do when you're a parent is you, you expect omniscience and perfection and all these kinds of things. Yeah, and absolutely. I felt bad that she'd hurt herself. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, baby cakes. And then give a big hug and all that. And, and she was fine. But that's that was just i mean that was mere accident and maybe even you know a tiny lack of of forethought it always seems obvious in hindsight though you sometimes don't see this stuff ahead of time and you're just oh, i'm so sorry and so on right and that's when it's inadvertent i mean if i'd actually spanked her uh, and, and frightened her and 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 yelled at her and and then i had to apologize to her for having done that like 50 times it'd be like yeah, oh, suicide oh, oh it'd be horrendous so with your friends, I think it's important to take the rightness and wrongness out of the conversation and simply to talk about you have some historical relationship with authority and with punishment and with conformity that I believe has led you to be more open to libertarianism, to anarchism, to voluntarism, just as I have. And your friend has most likely had some historical experience with these things that lends him to be more susceptible to these kinds of tyrannical or, as you say, fascistic ideas. If you don't know what those are, all you're doing is you're just pushing surface sounds around. You're not getting to the core of the problem. And I don't know, yeah, you've probably heard the bomb in the brain stuff, but it might be worth reviewing that. Yeah, um, I've just listened just to, to that see. one actually a few times. Right. 
So that that would be my suggestion. You know, there there is certainly don't don't give up on friendships, in my opinion, because of differences in values. Okay. Don't give up on friendships because of differences in values. Because differences in values can be enormously productive in terms of understanding how history shapes values. You know, if if you and your friend have different values and you can find in history what has led you to those differences in values. And that doesn't mean who's right and who's wrong. It just means differences, right? Then there's an enormous opportunity for knowledge, knowledge of your friend, knowledge of yourself, a much closer intimacy than arguing the surface of long ago causes. Now, I, I do believe that um, if, if uh, your friend you know, simply refuses to talk about any historical precedents for his beliefs and still continues to advocate the use of violence against you and won't listen to reason and yeah, isn't curious about his own history, well, then you, know, you may have another choice. But a difference in values is an opportunity to explore causes, which I think is, is a really wonderful opportunity. And a difference in values, I mean, we, we, you, you're obviously he's not pulling out a gun against you. We're talking pretty abstractions, right? A difference in values isn't like, uh, well, uh, I don't want to be robbed and you want to rob me. That's, not, that's more of a difference of, of, of actions. But uh, I, would, um, I would try and open that up and, and just remind him that it's nothing to do with, uh, with who's right and who's wrong, but it's a way of trying to understand where mm-hmm. you both are coming from in terms of the discussion. So hopefully make a real breakthrough in terms of your friendship. Thanks so much. Uh, I mean, I, I I really just can't thank you enough for for everything you've done, and and I can't wait to um to hopefully see you this summer at one of the events. Um, and uh, I hope you have a a wonderful day. I I certainly will. It is always a huge huge pleasure to to speak to listeners. Uh, I. I admire you guys so, so, so much. Also wanted to point out Mises.org forward slash e-texts forward slash defense myth dot PDF uh, is the text that I forgot to mention earlier. Somebody had a question that had they fired it off a number of times, so I'll just give a very quick, uh, quick answer if you don't mind. I'm sorry for the quick answer. Let me just scroll up and find it. How does the DRO overcome self-sufficient persons, farmer, vital persons, world-known surgeon that cures people that nobody else can, and the mainstream media, a mainstream media celebrity portraying the DRO that judges it as evil and says that people have to go to the competition? Well, if somebody is a self-sufficient farmer, let's say that they're just somewhere out in the wilds in Montana, and I believe Montana is mostly wilds, then they actually, you know, that's the... um, uh, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Well, if uh, somebody who is completely self-sufficient um, doesn't have any effect on society, who, who really cares what they're doing? Somebody goes and lives in the woods and eats berries and whatever and, and lives in a cave and never interacts with anyone in civil society? Who cares? Um, it doesn't, doesn't matter now. Of course, if they come into civil society, they need to go to a dentist. They need to have an operation. They need to, um, I don't know, get some food they can't get anywhere else. Then they're part of civil society, and that will be the case. Uh, how does the DRO overcome vital persons, world-known surgeons that cures people that nobody else can? Well, there's nothing for the DRO to do about that. The DRO should respect his contracts or her contracts, and um, uh, that's usually dealt with in the price mechanism, uh, for one thing. So uh, if the guy can cure people that nobody else can, uh, we hope that, of course, he's going to train other people. Uh, we hope that he's going to share his knowledge, and I think a lot of surgeons are very good and very helpful that way. Uh, but he will just simply be, I would assume, expensive. 
and he may do some pro bono stuff and there may be charities that will help people to achieve him, but uh, that will be dealt with in the market. The mainstream media, mainstream media celebrity portraying the DRO that judges it as evil and says that people have to go to the competition. Well, DROs are not going to operate in terms of quality on hearsay, right? I mean, that, that simply wouldn't work. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so if a DRO judges against a celebrity, then the uh, DRO will have to provide obviously a very good case given the public nature of that celebrity. The DRO will probably submit that finding to uh, a third judge, uh, an appeals process or a third judge. And at some point, the celebrity is just going to look foolish, right? If, if the DRO's uh, decision is overturned, then uh, – I mean I would assume like there would be some contract that says let's not go public until all of this stuff is resolved um, and that would be to the benefit and protection of both parties. But uh, if the DRO's uh, decision was overturned by a third party, then yeah, that would be a very important thing for the uh, celebrity to say. Uh, and it would be very important to, uh, to, uh, to help publicize that the DRO had made a mistake or done something wrong because that would encourage people to either go to another DRO or for the DRO to reform its policies so that this didn't happen or at least happened as little as possible. So I hope that that answers uh, some questions. Thank you again, again, everybody, for all of your support freedomainradio.com forward slash donate if you would like to help out with the um, uh, with the conversation and I'm looking for a couple of people to help me finish up the website if you have HTML or .NET Nuke expertise I would uh, really uh, appreciate that so have yourselves an absolutely wonderful week I'm only here because of you at every level and thank you thank you thank you for this amazing wonderful and incredibly privileged opportunity that I have to talk about philosophy with you and the rest of the world.